And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe Devine. And Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello there. Uh, Today is another Sensible Transfers episode and I hope you're all uh, viewing and enjoying the Sensible Transfers videos that we have been releasing on the TIFO Football channel so far. uh, I believe we have Manchester United and Spurs. By the time you're listening to this, I also think Arsenal, maybe? Can't remember. Anyway, one of them will be out. Real Madrid, actually. Oh, Real Madrid. Even better. Is it? I don't know. But I don't, you know, maybe it is. Some people, for other people, not. Uh, And today we'll be continuing our Sensible Transfers podcasts, where instead of focusing on clubs, we focus on players. Uh, We have a list of players, some of whom have been provided by the uh, YouTube community. So thanks to everyone who submitted some names and were interested to hear us talk about them. Uh, I believe Seb has added a few today as well, because we'll be focusing on free agents, of which the number is large. And there are some pretty great names on this list. So Some of them, I believe, will be free agents officially as of the summer, but are available to talk to other clubs now in January. Uh, this will be a fun episode, I think, and I believe you'll be surprised to hear of the quality on this list. Before we get to, to that stage, we also have a special segment at the beginning where we're going to talk to Matt Slater about a situation developing with the uh, with the prospective purchase of Burnley. Now, that's very interesting. Uh, I will direct you when we start talking to Matt to an article he's written that you can read to get the full uh, details and the full information. Um, it's Well, it's interesting, let's put it that way. So we're going to chat to Matt for 10 minutes, then we're going to get into transfers. And at the end of the podcast, Seb, you spoke to someone else. Sure did, Joe. I spoke to Greg Evans, who is the Athletics Aston Villa correspondent. And it was great to to catch up with him, actually, because last time we had him on the pod, it was just after Villa had escaped relegation. And uh, obviously six months later, they're much improved, and we talked about all the reasons why. I will point out that you've spoken to Greg this morning, which is uh, Friday the 8th, uh, before they play, I think, their youth team against Liverpool in the FA Cup, right? So it won't include that. Well, we we deliberately stay clear of all COVID matters just because it's obviously quite a fluid situation. But yes, uh, Villa will play uh, Liverpool in the Cup with with what Greg described actually as more of an under-17 side, which sounds quite strange. So we'll see how that goes. But obviously, um, we did record before that happened, yes. Yeah, cool. Okay, uh, well, uh, that's what we've got coming up for you today on the TIFO Football Podcast. Before uh, we get into it, into it big time, uh, I would like to remind you, listeners, that there's a wonderful available opportunity for you to snaffle at, to strike at, to grasp with your hands, you know, fingers gripping around the uh, one pound per week deal to the athletic. You know what? The harder you grip it, the better it will be, because you'll get more out of it. Does that work? No. Uh, (laughs) I've gone down a path here. Um, 
but what I'm saying is, uh, uh, you'll get, you know what? You pay, hey, wow, it's a one pound a week deal uh, to subscribe to the Athletic at the moment, where with all the finest quality uh, football journalism and indeed sports journalism available. Now there'll be some examples of it today when we speak to Matt. Uh, some of the fine work being done, uh, and also lots of uh, lots of fun stuff uh, too. But uh, dedicated journalists for each and every Premier League team, and some in the Championship too. Uh, and the best thing is that if you are a, a fan of, let's say, Leicester City, but also you like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that's a team, right? Sure, it's a team. Yep. <laughs> then you'll be able to have, uh, you know, with the, with with just one pound a week, you'll have uh, the closest access to both uh, both of those teams, both of those organisations, uh, with uh, dedicated journalists all across the uh, the Western Hemisphere. So, uh, please do that by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And the best thing is, uh, I get to point to you as a number and say, hey, look at me do my job well. Hmm? Hmm? So, just do it. But for now, I will leave you in the, uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of Matt Slater. Okay, so uh, I'm joined now by by Matt Slater of uh, of the Athletic to to take us through the situation with Burnley and the uh, and the takeover. So, Matt, first, can you start by telling us about ALK Capital? Who are they, and and who is the new chairman, Alan Pace? Well, yeah, uh, hello everybody. Um, so, ALK Capital, they are a relatively new sports investment group. They've been around in the states a little bit longer, but they registered. Here, a, a, you know, a UK branch in September, offices uh, in the States and London. Um, the main player, the, the, the front man, is Alan Pace, a guy who spent about 20 months, um, I think back in 2006, 2008, as president of Real Salt Lake, uh, who at the time were a, uh, a new one of the expansion teams in the MLS. And uh, prior to that, he'd worked pretty much, you know, sort of Wall Street Wall Street type jobs. He's sort of a salesman for, for banks. Uh, after his stint with Real Salt Lake, he went back to the financial world, worked for Citibank, who, you know, are an enormous multinational bank, and has been has been doing that for basically the last decade or so. But but clearly uh, loves sports, interested in sports, um, and about, you know, a year ago, six months ago, moved away from the financial world and has been looking to buy a sports club, sports clubs and sports related in you know um, companies. So you know is, is, is interested in building a like a lot of American investors, that kind of intersection between technology, media and sport. That's where it's all at for these guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in terms of the deal structure for Burnley uh, itself, it's uh, re- reported by you to be 150 million pounds for 84 percent of the club, but only 15 percent of its own money. Can you walk us through where the rest of the money is coming from? Yeah, it's a little bit complicated, and and um, perhaps the best way to start here is this story has been a long time in the making just as the deal has been a long time in the making Burnley been for sale for a while 
you know, about a year, maybe maybe longer, depending on who you talk to. That whole kind of principle of you know for sale and for sale, you know, like signs outside the house or you know maybe an offer type situation. Burnley have been in the market, and people have looked at Burnley and had conversations with the directors at Burnley, the former directors at Burnley, um, you know, for some time. Now, um, ALK, as I say, have. You know, set up specifically to you know basically private equity. I've mentioned Alan Pace. He's got some other partners there. One of the key guys is uh, someone called Dave Checkitz, who has a longer track record in U.S. sport. Lots. He's he's had you know senior roles in NBA, um, Utah Jazz, uh, New York Knicks, I think, as well as uh, involvement in MLS. It was him that basically employed Pace at Real Salt Lake. He was the he was the owner there. He's since sold. That, that franchise. So, you know, they're, 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 it's a private equity business getting into, as I say, sport. Now, the story that I published had had numbers in it. They were based on at least half a dozen sources, good sources, that, that had knowledge of the deal. I had other sources, and they all crystallised around that. There was a range. There was a range of the total value of the of Burnley, if you like, uh, there was a there was a there was um, they haven't bought all the shares. They bought eighty four percent of the shares because two of the previous directors have stayed on, most principally, most notably Mike Garlick, who was the who was the main shareholder. Burnley used to be owned by local businessmen. They sort of rescued the club and have run it very very well, very very sustainably for some time. Um, and that has really been the story of Burnley, both you know the success on the pitch and this very careful, sustainable approach off the pitch. Um, now, Garlic and one of his co-directors have, have stayed on and they've, you know, retained some shares. But 84% they are kind of bought. Now, the deal is complicated. They are paying in installments and um, there is, um, you know, various ideas about how long these installments are and how much they've paid up front. Now, my sources have told me that they believe that ALK have committed to pay about £150 million for these shares. Could be a bit more. I don't think it's any less, but could be a bit more. Um, and they have borrowed most of it. Now, um, the, the the full amount that they will borrow will really depend on these defer payments because they, they haven't paid all of it yet. There is more instalments to come. But they have certainly borrowed, I think, at least... Well, I've said 80 million for the total transaction. Bloomberg, um, you know, famous you know US uh, business outlet, have gone with 60 million out of an 100 million pound upfront payment. I think it's a little bit more. I think these deferred payments will involve more borrowed money. Now, the people they've borrowed from, this is quite important, are MSD Capital, another private equity firm, long established, been around since the 90s. It is the family office of Michael Dell. The man behind Dell Computers. Basically, it is his investment arm. It is it is a you know, investment company set up to manage his family's wealth, and they invest in lots of businesses. But in the last couple of years, they have got into English football in a big way, and they are already lending money to Derby, Southampton, and Sunderland. So this is now their fourth club that they're lending money to. I think they've borrowed. I think they're lending about eighty million to to ALK. Now, the rest of the money, the rest of the money that they are paying the previous shareholders for those shares is a small stake from them. I wrote in my story is 15 million. I've since heard that's the top end of what they're going to pay, that I, I, I could even have, have 
have, have given them you know more credit if you like in terms of an upfront payment from ALK itself it could be less and the rest and this is really interesting and this is one of the one of the I think the most interesting things of the whole of the whole deal but one of the most sort of unique things about Burnley is that Burnley have been sitting on cash for a long time I mentioned how sustainable they were uh, the directors were neither putting money in or taking money out but they were allowing it to accrue cash now that just is another asset then that you buy. And there's lots of kind of clever reasons why you might want to do this. Of course, it makes them more attractive to people trying to buy them because you, you know, you can say, buy me for a, buy me for a hundred pounds. Well, by the way, I've got 50 quid in the bank. That's yours. So really you've just spent 50 quid. Um, now they could have obviously taken that money out themselves to pay themselves dividends. There are, you know, there are sort of conversations about, you know, what's more tax efficient as a way of taking money out of a business. It, it, it's just a really intriguing part of the deal. Now, I, I, my, my sources, and I'm absolutely convinced and you know certain of this. And um, you know, as I said, there have been uh, lots of to and throw between um, the Athletic and ALK's PR firm on this. That there was at least 50 million in cash in Burnley when ALK bought the deal. Now that you know can be used to pay, as I say, the directors on the way out. It can be used to finance the club for the next year, two years. Obviously not a Premier League club, but but it can be used can be used as, as, as part of, of the financing going forward and it can be used in the January transfer window. So so there was cash in Burnley. It had been sitting there. We knew because it's public available uh, records at Company House that as of summer 2019, the most recent accounts that we can see, there was £42 million in the bank account. So in the 18 months since, they have hardly spent any money. I think it's a very small um, um, net transfer of about 10 million. Um, but they, they were accruing cash. They were a business that, you know, they, 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 they were on top of their wages. Um, you know, they're, they're basically paying about 60% of their turnover on wages. It crept up a bit to about 63%, but but well within, well within um, you know, kind of sensible parameters. And they, they could accrue cash on that. Um, okay, yes, nine months of the last 18 months have been affected by the pandemic, but Burnley came 10th, um, 83%. You know, eighty percent plus of their money comes from TV. They don't make much money on Matchday anyway, so there's not a huge hit there. They don't make much that much money commercially. So really, it's about broadcast. Broadcast has held up. They came fifteenth the season before. They came tenth last season on a better TV deal anyway. So yes, they could accrue crash even in a pandemic. So that is so that's it. So ALK have bought the shares, and this is it's interesting because we haven't had that many Premier League. Takeovers. We just haven't. That's one of the reasons why everyone is talking about this deal. I can assure you, everyone is talking about this deal in the industry. They have borrowed a lot of it, and the rest of the money they have fight. You know, they've they've put a small stake in, but the rest of it is cash that was in Burnley's bank account. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's the interesting thing that sort of differentiates this from the deal for Manchester United, for example. We, we've heard a lot about that over the years, the, the leveraged buyout, and there's an aspect to this Burnley deal which is similar. But the idea that, that cash from the uh, from Burnley's bank account itself is being used to buy Burnley is very interesting to me. There's a, there's a great quote uh, from a source within the article, which I'll read now. Um, it says, Manchester United was bought entirely on debt, as we say, so it's not illegal. If Pace buys it on debt, you can finance that debt, invest in the team, get into Europe and increase the revenues by £50 million a year, and then that's not a bad plan. But it means that they have to increase their revenues by £50 million a year, and that isn't easy. Can you walk me through the consequences, Matt? Because it sounds a little bit like this is, um, this is quite a risky proposition. 
It is, but you've seen their quotes, and you know you've quoted that one. But I think we then have to mention the fact that you know ALK, whilst they refuse to talk about the terms or the details or the amounts of the deal, they keep saying they keep reassuring fans, and they've they've pushed back at my story and said, you know, what we've done is reasonable. We're sensible people. We're not going to make the mistakes that people have made in the past. People have talked about Sunderland and other clubs, Bolton that have borrowed too much money or you know struggled once relegated. Um, you know, they've said no, 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 no. This is a good deal. We've got a good lender. And they've made this analogy with, you know, a mortgage and buying your house, which is fine, which is fine. And you're absolutely right to say that this is not that unusual when people buy businesses. You use debt to do it. Debt is efficient in, in, in sort of, you know, in, in, in tax terms. Um, you know, you can take your interest payments off your, if you like, your operating profits and that's tax deductible, you know. So there are, there are you know, there's a, there's a sort of sense to it that, that, that this, is, this, is a, this is how the, you know, the wheels of business turn. Right, but from football point of view, Burnley were debt-free. They've been debt-free for a very, very long time. They have not been paying interest to anybody. Now they are. That's the big change. Now, what ALK will tell you is say, okay, look, fine. This is a cost of business going forward. What we're going to do, because we're coming at this with energy and becoming with, coming at it with a sort of an international focus, is we're going to grow Burnley's commercial revenues. So don't worry about that debt, you know, that, that interest payment. It's manageable. We look, look at our cash. We've been accruing cash. We can, we can pay that interest. And anyway, we're going to grow the business. We're going to become the sustainable Premier League club. And ideally, who knows, we can perhaps even make Europe. And they have had a, a season in Europe within you know in the last few years and they made quite a lot of money that season so this is what they're saying it's going to be continued sustained success on the field um we're gonna we're gonna grow the the commercial revenues of this club which are you know pretty small i think they were sort of 15th 16th in the premier league table in terms of commercial revenue about 15 16 million a year so you know, there's upside there and he's talked about you know what what have burnley got they're, they're britain's favorite underdog you know, fine. So uh, it's, it's all good. The talk is good. The energy is good. And I, I genuinely believe that it's sincere too. But you speak to anybody that has um, looked at these deals in the past, and there have been so many of them, everyone comes in with this kind of rhetoric. Everyone comes in and believes that they can do this. Uh, at the end of the day, Burnley have been brilliantly run by local directors, local fans. They've had a fantastic manager and they've punched above their weight. Now, at some point, Lots of clubs get relegated. It's just a fact. If you're not if you're not one of the big six, and maybe sort of a Leicester or an Everton, or you know someone who's pretty close, someone you know, you are you're only a bad couple months away from oh dear, right? We are we, you know we're looking at relegation here, and and then that changes everything. You know, if you if you are getting eighty three percent of your money from Premier League central handouts, central payments. Well, that, that's that's a sort of existential business threat right there, and they you know they have made money on player trading, and he is very very interested in analytics and data. He's bought a couple of data companies already, analytic companies already, small ones, small football ones that you know, you know, no one really heard of. But but that's he's a big clue as to what he wants to bring to the table. We're we're going to use data to drive uh, our recruitment. And I, you know, I, I, I look forward to seeing how that goes f with them and, you know, and how that works with Daesh and the model that he has and all very exciting. But what he's telling Burnley fans is, don't worry. Yes, we've put debt on the club. 
debt that wasn't there before. And MSD charges, you know, it's private equity. It's pretty easy to work out what they charge because you can work out what they borrow at. And I've got pretty good sources to know what they charge at other places. It's about 9%, 9 and a bit percent. There's lots of fees in there as well. And it can get to 12% if you start missing payments. But that, you know, if, they've, if they have borrowed, as I believe, about 80 million, it could be a bit more when they have to pay the rest of the, 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 rest of the money for the shares. You know, you could be looking at upwards of interest payments of about 10 million a year. That's 10 million coming out of Burnley that hasn't been coming out of Burnley. So you are, Alan Pice is asking the fans to say, trust me, I have a business plan. I have a track record in finance. You know, he's saying I've got a track record in sport. I, I, I would argue he doesn't really, or it's certainly not very recent. I'm not sure how relevant it is. MLS 12, 13 years ago to Premier League now, but fine. That's just a matter of opinion. And there are other people within his group who do have more recent experience of sport. But he is essentially saying, trust us, that is a manageable interest payment. Just watch how we get on. Can I ask you to uh, very briefly for us to end, spell out a hypothetical. Let's suggest that, that Burnley, you know, as you say, maybe you're only a couple of bad months away from a relegation, or maybe they are losing Sean Dyche and a couple of their, you know, better players away from a relegation next season. Uh, these things can happen, um, and immediate repromotion uh, does not appear. What does the situation look like then? I just want to sort of preface that point by saying I'm not picking on Burnley. The, the, the point about them being a month or two away from relegation I, applies to half the Premier League. Half the Premier League every absolutely, season. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, that is just the reality of the Premier League and the reality of competing at that level, and 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 the competition. You know that is the risk that you buy into, and um, clubs like Bournemouth, Swansea, Bolton all look like solid Premier League clubs until they weren't. So that that is it's just as stark as that really. Now. Burnley, no doubt, and ALK, no doubt, will have done um, some forward projections that have done five-year plan, 10-year plan, and they probably have factored into a, a relegation within that. I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to think they had, certainly within a 10-year plan, that they could be relegated within that spell. And um, they've in the last 10 years, they've been relegated, I think, twice, and they've popped straight back. They certainly popped back the last time. Um and, you know, they, they did it well. They did it a bit like Newcastle did. You know, they went straight down. They came back as champions. They made a relatively small loss in that championship season. I think their championship season, they lost about five million. The following year, boom, back into profit because they're back into the Premier League. So they have they have a proven track record at, at managing a relegation. Now, the problem, of course, becomes if you don't bounce straight back. Ideally, don't get relegated, okay? We've already discussed that that is unlikely in the long term for half the Premier League clubs, right? So bounce straight back then, as you know, a Newcastle, a Burnley have done in the past, a West Brom maybe. If you don't, then you're looking at the Sunderland example, the Bolton example, the Wigan example, where the uh, payment, the, the parachute payments, which don't cover every cost anyway, dwindle, run out, you start to lose players, you start to lose a manager, suddenly you can get stuck in that nightmarish situation in the championship of what do I do? Do I keep keep stretching, keep reaching? It's it's close. The Premier League's there. I can see it. I can just reach out and touch it. At the same time, you were just compounding your losses. And then who knows? I don't you know. I don't need to finish that because that 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 that, that, that thought is there surely. So that that's it. The situation is really that Burnley have changed, and the reason I have been looking at Burnley. 
Uh, I have no animus against, personal animus against them. I have the only things I've written about Bernie in the past have been full of respect for their business model and for the fact that they are this sort of you know they punch above their weight, and I admire that. But my concern around the messaging from ALK and the club, but particularly from ALK, I didn't think was entirely. I don't want to say honest or dishonest, but I don't think they were telling the full picture. I still don't think fans fully understand what has happened to their club. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it has changed. Burnley, as a as a club, as a company, as a business entity going forward, are different. Let's see how they get on. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Okay, uh, let us begin now. Part two, where we discuss the uh, the free agents or players who are going to be free agents in the summer uh, who are currently free to talk to clubs. Um, this list is amazing. Uh, and I don't know if it's worth just... I don't know, what do you think? Should we leave them uh, with some tension as we go through? Or should I just l- read some of the players on this list now? Definitely tension. Definitely tension. tension. Okay, let us begin then with... Hmm... Let's begin with David Alaba, who I, a name probably won't surprise people because we, we've mentioned it before in some videos, and also he's, you know this discussion has been around town. But, uh, but David Alaba uh, is, uh, I mean, two years ago uh, I thought of him as the, the you know one of the best defenders in the world. Is this still the case? What's the situation uh, at Bayern, Seb? Why why is he leaving? Uh, because presumably he'll be very sought after. He sure will, Joe. Because um, it's easy to forget this, but he's still only twenty eight years old. I know. He- feels like he's been around forever but he um yeah he's still theoretically in his prime and can play a variety of different positions and yeah it's interesting because I I wonder whether I wonder how the market views him positionally because obviously at Bayern Munich his sort of um he's obviously zeroing in on his uh 10th Bundesliga title as of this season which is uh an amazing statistic but I wonder whether uh, he'll be sort of classified as a as a utility player or a left back or a left sided centre half in a three. I mean, he's such a dexterous footballer that you wonder whether um, he'll be treated as such as a kind of a, a utility option for you know all the best sides around the, around uh, around Europe. Well, I wonder whether it would depend, uh, given his pedigree, will depend on where he wants to play. Might be where he goes. So I wonder if that that could be the case. Um, Alex, tell us a little bit more about that because, as Seb describes him, he, he is he, he can be a utility player. We, you know, we he obviously started his career, or at least uh, his um his, the, the 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 majority of his career as a left back. Um, but recently he's been playing as a centre back. We know he can play as a defensive midfielder too. Tell us a little bit about him as a player. Yeah, I mean he's he is incredibly versatile. Um, he like you say left back with with incredible pace but also the ability to 
cut inside um, to to play as a an inverted um, fullback as as Guardiola calls them, which is something that that Guardiola used him uh, to do at Bayern Munich. Um, so he's got the technical ability to to play further up the pitch at Bayern on the left side of that central defence. He's the guy tasked with bringing the ball forwards out of defence, spraying passes around. Um, I mean, it's worth noting that both him and Jerome Bertang are, are consistently, uh, you know, sort of towards the top end of, of European central defenders for progressive passing and, and moving the ball forwards. So he's he's basically able to do anything from from almost, I would say, central midfield back. Um, obviously, with the emergence of Alfonso Davis, um, he's not really required as a left-sided defender um, for Bayern anymore. Um, but it's an interesting one because, you know, as Seb said, he's only 28, but he has been at Bayern his entire career with the exception of a, a brief loan spell at Hoffenheim when he was 18. Um, so I think this is this is very much an instance of, of fresh pastors and, and new challenges as much as it is, you know, there's, there's, there's no reason that Bayern wouldn't want to hold on to him. It's not like he's dropped off in performance suddenly or anything. This is, uh, I think this is the player making a decision to try and find something different. And he will appeal to every single top club in Europe that could afford him. Well, I was going to ask specifically, because we, 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 we've covered Manchester United already um, in a Sensible Transfers video. The reason I bring them up as a club is because one of the roles that you identified as something that uh, you know could be, could be required or could be something to be looked at is a left-footed or left-sided centre-back. Um, David Alaba would seem to fit this. He didn't. He doesn't appear in the video. I just wondered if there was a if there was a reasoning behind that thinking, or if there were just better options out there. You think? Well, it's it's partly because we we picked him for somewhere else. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm, oh yes, I, there's <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> not not to, to well, it's not a it's not a spoiler because that video will be out. I think. Um, but no, I mean he's the thing with him is that he he is left footed, and I know we get some some stick on uh, on YouTube for being slightly obsessed with left footed centre backs. But with Manchester United particularly, I think there is a, a deficit of left footed players in that squad. Really, only Luke Shaw and, and Tellers are kind of the natural left footers there. Um, and so having a player that can can open up both sides of the pitch from the left side is really important. Alaba's got good pace, um, so as a recovery defender, he'd he'd work well. My only concern with Manchester United is that uh, Maguire likes to be the, the defender that brings the ball out and sprays passes around uh, and, and is actually quite good at that and does it from the left-hand side. So whether United would have uh, two centre-backs that were both comfortable doing that, I, I, I'm not sure... Um, that would necessarily work. At United, he could also be used as that that deeper lying defensive midfielder as well. I th- think he's got the uh, the game awareness, uh, the speed to cover that position, and obviously it would bring in a left footed player, but one that can play flight slightly further up the pitch. Um, so he, yeah. yeah, he would work there. Really interesting proposition. Okay, Seb, any other thoughts on David Alba? Where, where, where can you imagine seeing him play? I just think it makes a little bit of sense potentially for him to go to Manchester City, but then to play as a fullback. Because if you were to replace Benjamin Mendy with David Alaba and involve him in that Guardiola system, which sees him kind of almost tuck into a, a deep central midfield position, you have all the benefits of his playmaking ability. Plus, of course, he's a, he's a wonderful set piece taker. So it's, um, 
I mean, it will come down to finances, of course, and uh, we're still in the process of finding out who can um, who can afford what and who's been affected by yeah, yeah. The, the last nine months. So it's um, it's interesting, but that would can be... Can I pick um, up on that City point, though? Because, like, do you know what? I'm on, watching them for the last couple of games, I've been really impressed with Joao Cancelo. I'm wondering, are City still in the habit of tucking both of their fullbacks inside or is it are they doing one and not the other because Joao Cancelo I think he's been he's been you know uh, with the, the exception of his kind of fun, funny little fight with uh, Luke Shaw throughout the last 20 minutes of, um, <laughs> of, of the game over the weekend uh, I thought the last two games I've seen him play outstanding yeah no I don't disagree with any of that I think he's been excellent I'd be interested to see what happens when Carl Walker is available again to see where the Cancelo keeps his place but yeah, I don't. I wouldn't quibble with that. I think the objective over time will still be to tuck those fullbacks in because I, I wonder at the moment whether the football we're seeing in the Premier League is a little bit more transitional than normal. It's a little bit more basketballish than it otherwise would be, and I, I feel like we're watching a lot of broken football, which benefits fresh, you know, physically capable players. Maybe when it becomes a little bit more strategic, i.e., when it settles down a little bit more, uh, that 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 shape will return. I don't know though. It's a very good point about Consola. I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, that that Alaba, as I said before, Alaba started to do that quite consistently under Guardiola at Bayern, but also it it could solve another problem uh, for Man City in that it would allow Guardiola to persist with Rodri as the, the deeper central defender, uh, sorry, deeper central midfielder, because he'd have the additional cover. Uh, and that would mean that, that, you know, City would be less porous on transition, but would also have the ability to progress play in the way that Guardiola wants to do. So I think it's a very sensible suggestion. Okay, great. Uh, well, that's David Alaba. Good luck to him, whatever he does. I like him. Good player. Uh, let's move on and discuss... Hmm, who shall we pick from this lovely... Li- Tell you what, let's do... Uh, Memphis Depay, because he does come up in another sensible transfers video, not yet released. Uh, we can discuss him now anyway. Um, what I'm curious about uh, largely with uh, with Memphis Depay is, um, you know, he's he's shone uh, uh, so far in, um, in Liga, uh, but of course he did have a spell at Manchester United in the Premier League. Will will there be clubs that will be worn away as a result of uh, of his sort of lower impact in a, in a bigger league? Or was that simply a case of uh, a move too early, do you think, Seb? I can't decide, Joe. Uh, I'm really hesitant to judge him on what happened to Man United because if you think about what's involved in going between the Eredivisie and the Premier League and not just any old Premier League club at Man United, that's difficult enough. When you do it um, at the age of 21, that's even harder. Um, So I think it's a little bit unfair to potentially cite maturity issues or put these red flags um, into what has been a a really good um, resurgence at Lyon. But then again, this is how football works. Like, if you've shown that you can't quite do it at a big club, all of a sudden, similar-minded clubs get a little bit nervous about spending large sums of money on you. Now, in this instance, it, there's no transfer fee involved, but Memphis Depay would command a very large wage because, well, he deserves it. He's played exceptionally well, um, and I, you know, in spite of that serious injury. I think there will be some clubs who are wary of his personality. He's quite an outgoing person. Uh, he has interests beyond football. And for whatever reason, there are just some sporting directors who don't like that, who who kind of prefer it when players are, you know, entirely dedicated uh, to what they do on the pitch. And he's he gives the impression of being more than just a footballer, which I think it's credit to him. But, you know, other people would disagree with that, I think. 
Yeah. Well, uh, Alex, uh, as Seb says, he has had a, I, I don't want to call it a renaissance because it's not, I mean, it's, you know, with the context there of, uh, of the age and everything when he was at Manchester United, but he's had an incredible spell, Leon. Tell us a little bit about him now as a player, uh, what he's, uh, what he's uh, you know, achieved performance-wise and, and where you think he might fit in elsewhere. He's certainly getting a good a good return on goals per 90. Um, I mean, his his best season, really, apart from the the one when um, PSV won the Eredivisie back in 2014-15 was the the season at Lille, uh, sorry, Lyon, um, not the first one, he joined the second one, where he hit 19 goals. I I think the issue with someone like Depay is that he's, I don't want to say too versatile because that's probably a silly thing to say, but with football using inverted wingers and strikers a lot, you get certain players, and Depay is one of them, uh, and and there are plenty of others. So Marcus Rashford maybe is a good example too, where the versatility of that player, either in a wide position cutting inside or as a centre forward, means that they can sometimes be moved around a little bit depending on who else is there, um, and so it can make it difficult sometimes for a really top side to look at a player like that and go, well, they're definitely one thing or they're definitely the other. I think Depay still at 26 is is probably uh, you know he has a big move ahead of him and what what a team buying him would need to do is definitively stake him being a left inside forward or a striker and and kind of go with that consistently um but you know he's the kind of player who can do either well you know he drops off well he drives the ball forwards he's got good shooting from range but again he can operate inside the penalty area quick movements to get away from markers and so on so it's it's a question of finding what you think his best role is within a particular setup and then and then consistently using him there rather than moving him around as like a piece in a jigsaw how old is he now 26 time really flies isn't it how is memphis Depay 26 and david Alaba is 28 that doesn't make any sense to me well, at all these these are both players who made their top flight debuts when they were 17 so yeah. they have been around for a long time and and it's i think sometimes it can you know time marches on and then you suddenly think oh god i had you in a football manager save 10 years ago and and you're still doing stuff and you're only that age but you know he's got he's got a good and consistent scoring rate oh that's that's good I, I, I i'm not looking forward to being of the age where i'm older than every professional football player in the premier league who's the oldest premier league player right now it's probably one of the backup goalkeepers. Isn't it would it? probably be someone like I'm Scott Carson. Google it. Yes, oldest Premier League player. Now, who have we got here? Uh, oh, transfer marked. A wonderful sight. Uh, I accept your cookies. The oldest player at the moment. Oh, this is youngest. Oh, Willie Caballero, uh, who was thirty-eight years old. And 11 months, so almost 39 when he played uh, in September last year <clears throat> in a 3-3 draw. So who's older than 39? No one's older than 39 here, are they? No, I'll, I'll be 39 in March. Oh. So you're just, as soon as Willie Caballero retires, <laughs> you're the oldest one. Oh, that's exciting to me. That's exciting I to me. I, but it's uh, Gigi Buffon's still going and he's 42, so... No, that's true. He's the real marker. 
I've got some time yet. Seb's got a few years. We'll be fine. Everything's fine. Memphis Depay has a few years left too. Uh, hopefully more than a few. Um, I would like to hear, let's go to Seb first. I want a team that he could play at well, please. Inter Milan. Because I sketched out Ooh. a little scenario where La Torre Martinez leaves in the summer. And I'm not entirely sure that Depay is an Antonio Conte player. But I quite like the idea of a Depay-Lukaku uh, centre-forward pairing. In the same way that I, I, I kind of see him maybe as the player Conte wanted Alexis Sanchez to be, really, in that kind of right. system. Sort of a, a multi-purpose, yes. broad-ranged attacker. I, I just think it would be interesting. And I think um, the, sort of the, 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 developed, um, the developing creative elements in Lukaku's game would be uh, quite a nice mesh with his abilities too. So that would be interesting. Don't they only uh, don't they only sign aging Premier League players though, Seb? Don't worry about it. Moving on, that's a good pick. I like it, uh, Alex. I know you've already picked for video, so feel free to just keep that suggestion if you want, or you know, spread out a little bit. Everything's fine. No, I'm going to stick with that um, largely because it's easier because I've already done the work. Um, yep, yep. It's yep. Uh, it's Barcelona, um, and and I think there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, as we highlight in the video, obviously, Barca currently have Ronald Koeman in charge, but with upcoming presidential elections and so on, that could change. I think Depay has a strong relationship with Koeman and also knows Frankie de Jong from the Dutch national side, but is technically capable enough to play under a more kind of technical possession type of manager like a Xavi Hernandez, for example. Um he works as a central striker, but he also works on the left-hand side, which I think might take some of the pressure off someone like Ansu Fati to, to necessarily, you know, consistently perform in that role. It gives a bit of flexibility. And I like the idea of a Barcelona front three where the players can, can interchange, not necessarily in terms of, you know, specific you're on the left to start and, you know, and you're in the centre to start, but that, that kind of positional fluidity and interchange... I think that's when they play their best football and Depay is the kind of technical player who would be able to do that. Um, so I think it makes sense for a lot of reasons. I like it. I like it a lot. Okay, uh, let's go to AC Milan now, where we, we're going to talk about two players, uh, both of whom, caveat, uh, still could sign new deals and in one case um, probably will. Uh, and hey, this is we're again, we're recording this a few days before it's released, so if anything changes in the meantime, you know, sorry... Uh, the the two players are Giovanni Luigi uh, Donnarumma and then Hakan Chalhanalu. Uh, so uh, Hakan is 26 years old. Let's start with him because he's appeared in a few recent uh, videos. He's exciting people. People like him. That's my take. <laughs> uh, who wants to go first on Hakan? He's a, an interesting player. He first kind of came to attention because he's extraordinarily good at free kicks. Um, and when he was at Leverkusen, um, he he produced some video-worthy moments uh, for that. At Milan, he, he's been slightly pushed around um, in terms of his playing position. He's kind of settled in the 10 role now uh, at Milan, and obviously they're having a fantastic season, and he is very, very much a part of that. He's got six assists so far. Um but he's an intelligent player. He will drop quite deep into midfield um, alongside Benacer, for example, to, to spray the ball around. He's got a good range of crossfield passing. He's not maybe quite a kind of technical, intricate 10 all of the time. You know, he, he likes to sort of sit back slightly and, and put passes through from a pocket rather than being involved in quick interplays and, and bursting through. 
But because of this passing ability and also because of his set piece ability, um, he is a consistently dangerous um, player. He almost hit double figures in goals and assists last season. He got nine of both in the league. Um, so he's certainly, you know, in terms of output, he's he's pretty high up there for someone of his position. He is also only 26. So, you know, there's again, we're, we're talking about players who have at least one big move ahead of them, if not potentially, in, in his case, even two. Uh, it's really difficult to see necessarily where he would go. Um, Arsenal. Well, yeah, I mean, Arsenal can get linked with any player that, that roughly fits in that position. I, I yeah. think I think at Arsenal you'd lose out you wouldn't necessarily need his ability to drop off and pass from a slightly deeper position. Um because I, I don't think that's Arsenal's problem. I think they do need somebody who's a little bit better at the kind of quick technical interplay closer to the box. For me, the most sensible thing for him to do is to sign a new contract. I know that's a really boring answer to the question. How dare you? Um, but I could also <laughs> I could also see him potentially making a return to the Bundesliga. Um, you know, one of the clubs that's that's sort of knocking around. I, I, I could see him working at RB Leipzig. Um, I think he's got the ability to play in one of those more tucked in roles. Um, potentially even Dortmund, if they lose someone like Julian Brandt to a, a more predatory club, um, looking to, to take on a playmaker who is used to Bundesliga football and, and is therefore adept at that kind of pressing and, and the athletic side of the game as well, which he's got, uh, that could work too. But if I were him, I'd sign a new contract. Yeah, Leipzig just feels like a step backwards, doesn't it? Even though I'm not suggesting you know current position league-wise, uh, possible outlook-wise, it is. It just feels like a step back for a player who's uh, you know starring in an AC Milan team that are doing well. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. And, and this is why signing a new contract would would be my answer because I think I think the thing with Milan is not only are they doing well at the moment but they're doing well with quite a young squad so this is a team that you know they may not win Serie A this season because it's always very hard to count out Juventus and, the, and there are other challenges there but um, it's a team that feels like it's built for a run of success now so I think you know, if you're there, it's probably a good time to stay on that bandwagon rather than jump off. I like it. Seb, what do you think? No, I'm with Alex in, in the sense that I, I think the, the the best way forward for him is to sign that new contract. And and, and also because he's a little bit political. Um, I can't remember whether it was at the beginning of 2020 or right at the end of 2019, but um, most people remember that, uh, that controversy which involved Turkish internationals uh, making military salutes. Um, after goals are scored, um, he has, uh, I think, he's tweeted his support for President Erdogan in the past. And I'm not passing judgment on that. I'm just saying that a lot of clubs are going to be a little bit nervous around that. Clubs are becoming more sort of PR sensitive. And so the idea of having to deal with something like that is not that appealing. And also, you're not going to embrace that challenge for a player who occupies uh, that level of the game. If he was a truly special player, maybe. But he's one of those guys that's just very good. Uh, and so I think that um, just from a financial and footballing perspective, if he's he's found a little groove at AC Milan, he's had a really good season. He's been, uh, I think he's been almost ever present for Milan this year. Uh, and they're obviously right at the top of Serie A, um, as we record. So it doesn't make a lot of Do you think in seven years' time, there'll be lots of rumours about him joining uh, either Fenerbahce or uh, Basak Shahir? 
I think he's heading towards yeah <laughs> that that kind of future. He's uh, there. There are certain mantles that he's due to inherit, I guess. Okay. Well, hey, best of luck to him. The other AC Milan player we're going to uh, discuss is Gianluigi Donnarumma, who uh, people are very, I mean, have always been very, very excited about. Uh, Seb, you said here that you know there's at least intention to extend his contract, and he's publicly said that he's willing to. Um, you wanted to include him in this plan anyway because uh, it's at least you know likely that other clubs might be trying to change his mind about that. He's highly sought after. Yeah, really interesting because obviously go back a few years and he was he was he angered the Milan support by wanting out by refusing to uh, sign a new contract I think um, and that drew a uh, very heavy response most notably in 2017 at the Under 21 Championship when the Italian supporters who were at the tournament who had gathered behind him got behind his goal um, I think they showered him with fake banknotes um, and started calling him <laughs> Dollar Rumor. Um, which oh, is a very clever play on words. So I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm on the wrong side of the fence with this. I don't like him as a goalkeeper. There's something about him which I don't quite trust. I don't really believe in him being a truly top level player. I, I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to accept that I'm completely wrong about that. But it, there's just something I don't know. Maybe it's because he has very, very long arms, and as a result, reminds me of Aurelio Gomez. I don't know. Maybe it's just a... I'm sure it's a problem with me, but uh, I I could see someone like Chelsea uh, making a run at him, particularly after their um, their goalkeeping struggles. I could make a case for him going to Paris Saint-Germain because eventually Kayla Navas is going to lead a, you know, a, a long-term successor and PSG would presumably like some stability at the goalkeeping position, which they haven't really had uh, properly at least and they're kind can of can i the, say the, poor the old kayla sense. nevers can i say because i, I think not based player, on what you're but, saying oh, oh yeah. no 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 not based on what you're saying i just feel like uh you know fantastic goalkeeper always been uh he's always been sort of second in people's fantasies though do you know what i mean well this is this is the price you pay for playing in the kind of teams that he has i mean he he won a, a succession of european cups and a team with players like tony Kroos and luka modric and cristiano ronaldo and karen benzema you, you never as a goalkeeper you're never going to enjoy top billing people are never going to talk about you when, when you when you, you sit behind all that firepower well you know never mind um did you want to discuss it sounds like you wanted to discuss that more you sounded more passionate about that than i do i just I just there's just so many sirens. Oh, he's, so, he's, he's an excellent sick. player, but he is he is nearly uh, he's either very nearly thirty five or actually thirty five. So it's it's time. It's, oh, um, I, as I said, I'm not I'm not questioning your your uh, suggestion that he's going to need a long term replacement. I just always felt for him because I, I felt like uh, it, it, it's it's I don't know. I've always considered him to be a case of some people thinking, always wishing for something you know in fantasy better than they have, but not realizing the quality that they do already have. And I think also he's not helped by the fact that he's a little shorter than other goalkeepers. Uh, you know, I suppose that does make some of his um, some of his saves look very acrobatic and spectacular. But I just feel like he's always been, you know, better than just solid. And unfortunately, uh, lots of supporters of the clubs that he's played at have always been willing to um, or were interested in taking a gamble on a player who who was less certain, but perhaps had a higher ceiling. Um, it just, I just wonder if that uh, affects you over a long period of time. What your if you were always the player that is the second choice in the fantasy, how that makes you how that makes you feel as a thirty five year old, you know what I'm saying, Seb? 
I do know Joe. Yeah, I'm thinking about him. <laughs> I'm just thinking about him. I, I, you know, I want him to know that this has I think gone into such a weird place. It's like this uncorked, this strange affection you have for Kayla Navas in this kind of just, weird kinship that you seem to have no, developed I, with him. <laughs> it's, it's just, I just it's think flatly you go, bizarre. Kayla. You go. You know that guy. What an incredible career that guy has had. Uh, like what I'm saying is he's an example of a player who who the actual reality of his career, both in terms of trophies and in terms of uh, of of playing ability and and you know time at the top, is is truly tremendous. And yet he's never been considered at that quite that level by most supporters or many people. Many people. That's what I'm saying. It, 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 the, the the public perception of him, based on you know as a result of weird tra- constant transfer stories, uh, is not. Uh, is not commensurate with his actual, uh, with the actual reality of Kaylor Navas. Let, let's be fair though, because um, his clubs have been um, complicit in that too. Because obviously, when he was at Real Madrid, they tried very hard to replace him with um, David de Gea. Yes. So you know that, that transfer rumors is is a little bit to do with it, but also it's kind of partly the cost of a like Real Madrid in football terms are the the kid in the sweet shop that just doesn't you know, can't keep, you know, can't stop reaching into the Already tins. got a bloody gobstopper in their mouth. And they just, they can't Kalon stop Nevax. grabbing gobstoppers. Exactly. And so he is that kind of goalkeeper and he's a, he's a victim of that because there's never a point at which Real Madrid, you know, habitually say, yes, that's enough. We are good in that position. They're always reaching for something better. And, and so yeah. that's kind of worn off on his career a little bit, which I, and I agree that it is unfair, but. I hope he's happy. Happened. That's all I'm saying. I hope he's happy and, and content. <laughs> Uh, uh, Rumor though let's go back to Rumor. Uh let's, let's just assume that you know let's say he wasn't going to sign another contract w- which clubs we've we've got we had Chelsea I personally I can't see that because they now have Edward Mendy they still have Kepper on the books until he goes I don't think there's any chance of it uh, what was the other club that you mentioned as a possibility oh PSG of Paris course that's where we got to Paris um, yeah. Alex tell me what you think where should where would you see him because I, I'm always interested in this conversation as it relates to top goalkeepers because there are naturally few options yeah totally i i mean i think the thing with donnarumma is that he you know he started 30 games for ac milan when he was 16 uh and according to the stats he's arguably the second best goalkeeper in in Serie A for this season um remarkably pepe reina has got the best post shot expected goals per 90 another um, great player <laughs> which i'm not sure anyone would have seen 38 but still younger than me um and so, you know, you're... God, you're older than Pepe Reina. I'm older than Pepe Reina, yeah, just. Well, not just, by about 100 days or... 100 That's one of those things that comes up in the pod every now and again, and you just, it just takes your breath away. You're older than Pepe Reina. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Um, draw attention to it again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure everyone heard. I, hey, I've got more hair than Pepe Reina, though, so... I've got um, more hair than Pepe Reina. I mean, that's not something to be proud yeah, of. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's that's, that's, you know. that's a fair point. Um, so I think I think the thing with goalkeepers is that um, the argument for buying them younger is that you then you then have consistency in the position where consistency matters most. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I and I think if you look at someone like De Gea, for example, when Manchester United bought him. That was very much with a view to securing that position for ideally maybe like a decade. And and I think that's the way people think about goalkeepers. So with Donnarumma, yes, that's that's probably what you'd be getting. Um I, I can't say that I've watched enough of him to be able to to particularly argue with 
with Seb's point or otherwise. Um, it's worth saying that he's only had one season where his save percentage has been less than 71%, which is pretty good. And he's not always been playing behind the best defence. You know, Milan were consistently sort of fifth or sixth for most of that period. Um, so, yeah, it's got to be someone with lots of money. Um, I, I can see Chelsea making sense. Um because there's a profile thing there as well. PSG definitely makes a lot of sense, and they have taken Italian goalkeepers before. Obviously, they had Buffon, but they had um, Siriglu for quite some time as well. Um, and, I mean, I could possibly see even someone like Juventus going for him. Um, Tottenham. It would... Tottenham. <laughs> Tottenham. Tottenham. I don't think Tottenham have the, the money or necessarily the... I, I think Donnarumma would look at Tottenham as being too much of a project for him i think he wants to win stuff straight away um yeah i agree, I agree. and and i i think there's there's an understandable ego there that comes from the fact that you know he was playing Serie A football at the age of 16 he was the best young goalkeeper in the world in inverted commas personally i don't think he's the best young goalkeeper in europe um i think that's safanov over at krasnodar but um yeah i i mean I, if he stays in italy it's juventus um I think I think the bright lights and the big wage packet of PSG probably makes the most sense for him. Um, oh, but I'm oui, not sure Paris. it's the best footballing move for him. It's um, kind of what Juve do, isn't it? Like when, when there's a standout player at one of their rivals or when they're threatened by something, they go and take the player. If you talk about Bayern? Juventus. No, Juventus. No, oh, I, I mean, Bayern, Bayern do it as, yeah. yeah. Um, not that Bayern need a goalkeeper. But, you know, Juve have got Chesney in goal. And and he's not, yeah, he's not done badly by any stretch. But you look at a team like Juventus that consistently has aspirations to be at the top level of European football because Serie A is more or less a given for them. And you do feel like that's one of those positions where, you know, quite a significant upgrade would be worth investing in for a consistent period of time. Um, obviously, it would be deeply, deeply unpopular, but then Juve... They don't care about that kind of thing. And I don't think Donnarumma necessarily does either. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, again, best of luck to him. Uh, we have some more names on the list here. Let uh, We've only got about 15 minutes left, if if that actually. How long have we been talking for? A long time. Uh, let's just... Hmm, who do we who do we care about the most here? Uh, Jorginho Wijnaldum. Let's do him. Uh, th this story's been around for a while. I don't understand this story uh, because I haven't followed it in the slightest. So, Seb, I'm going to come to you first to explain to me why... Well, fundamentally, because Wijnaldum is a little bit underpaid. He reportedly earns around £75,000 a week, which, given that he's won a European Cup and a Premier League, is and you know, given his involvement in those two successes, that is a pretty meagre wage. Now, apparently, um, Liverpool have been offering something which amounts to a kind of a forty to fifty percent increase on that. But he, uh, there hasn't been an agreement between the two. I, I don't know what the current state of affairs is, but I, it looks like one of those situations where one of those difficult decisions clubs have to make from time to time when a successful and popular player who is now thirty. Uh, just comes to the natural end of his time at a club. I mean, he's had a very good Liverpool career. He was uh, quite decent at Newcastle before he got there. So he's had a, a really good time in the Premier League. And now probably to, to earn the wage he wants for the sake of his own future, but also kind of the uh, the, 
the space within their wage budget that Liverpool want to, to kind of rebuild and consolidate their success, it might just be better for them to part ways. Okay, in which case, where where can he go uh, where at 30 he can earn the wage that, that he wants to? Because that is also a very small number of clubs. Well, it's very, very difficult because there aren't many clubs around who would actually see him in spite of all of his success as someone really to to push their chips into the table for. You just wouldn't, would you? Because he's not he's not a he's not a midfield leading player. He's not someone that you build around, either you know in, in terms of his skill set, but also because of his age. He's thirty. He's no, he's maybe got two or three years left. You're not going to pay someone like that 150 grand for three years. It's especially now it's just a ridiculous decision. So this is one of the first times I've actually drawn a blank. I cannot for the life of me find him a home which makes sense beyond, you know, stupid things like saying he goes to retirement leagues and earns fortune because I don't Tottenham. <laughs> no, because why 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 would you? What what is what is left for him to achieve in England? I don't think he stays in England because there's there's no point. He's won the Premier League. I don't think he necessarily go somewhere where the European Cup is in sight, because while that might be nice, he's done it. He's got the medal already. I just think it's too soon. He's in that really awkward place between still having a few decent years left, but not quite enough of them whereby someone would you know, would, would invest heavily in him. So it's a really awkward the thing, position. Though, that's why I, 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 I sort of, I feel for players in this position because as you say, he's been a, um, he's been a real, uh, a really important component of that Liverpool team. I, I don't think it goes, yeah. goes far, uh, too far to say that. Um, I think he's, uh, he's a fantastic player. He's been, he's been oh, a great really for the club player. in that sense. Yeah. And he probably does, like he deserves the opportunity to make as much money as he can because he's in a weird position uh, that very few people are, where you have the ability to draw in uh, m- many, many millions of pounds in a short space of time. And as you say, he's only got two or three years left. So I say, Jorginho, go get him, pal. Get that money, you know? But hey, where Joe, can you he know, get it? He must, he must be able to get it in, in maybe in, 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 in the Middle East. I don't think China's much of an option anymore. MLS aren't, aren't sort of bringing in seemingly, uh, you know, overseas players and paying them lots of money anymore. That's working well for them. So uh, really, are there really no options? Well, I, I think... You know what would happen, ideally for him, if if there was a big takeover of a you know a second tier club somewhere, like second tier in terms of um, uh, competitiveness rather than actual league level. So, for instance, had he not played for Newcastle and that Newcastle takeover had gone in, gone over, had gone through, even then he'd have gone there. It's that kind of signing because a sporting director who just has a lot of money to play with would say, "Ooh, proven winner, I want him." Here, have a massive contract. That's the you kind of deal that he would You don't think, for example, that he from. could... But what about, for example, could he not be a useful transitional player for a team like Barcelona for three years? But if he's looking for a... Yeah, but if he's looking for a big salary and Barcelona are doing everything they can to, to cut their wage bill back, I mean, it would be useful for them to have him. I just can't see... I can't make a case for that actually happening given their current political situation. Okay, Alex, Seb has basically said it's impossible, so go. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's it's difficult, and it's partly difficult because Wijnaldum's such an odd player um, in that, you know, he's become associated with this incredibly functional, tidy, ball-winning, pressing midfield at Liverpool. But prior to that, he had four seasons where he hit double figures worth of goals from, from an, a midfield position, including his season at Newcastle. Um and so, you know, he's somebody who who can get forwards and play not necessarily as an attacking midfielder, but as a late arriving midfielder in the box to score. 
that's not what he's been doing much at Liverpool. But there's there's a versatile, intelligent footballer there. I think actually, I think Barcelona's a really good shout. Oh, thank um, you. And while yes, they have wage constraints. They have wage constraints within the matrix of being the you know the highest paying sports club in the world by squad average wage bill. So it's it's all relative. Um, I think actually another shout potentially could be uh, could be somewhere like Inter, um, just to add a bit of of solidity and experience and know how he kind of fits the profile of the the sort of player that that Conte would would like. You know, he's tactically aging Premier astute, League players, he's hardworking. Yeah. <laughs> he's an aging Premier League player. Um, I I could see him potentially, and I don't know what their wage systems like, but I could see him at, at somewhere like Dortmund, for example. Um, they do like to have, you know, quite robust midfielders who are tactically disciplined um, and intelligent. And and I I can see. I think the thing with him now, and this is, for example, why Barcelona works, is I can see him being the sort of midfielder who plays alongside a much younger one and kind of shepherds them through games and and helps them out where they need to be. And so, you know, him and Frankie de Jong, for example, or him and someone like Jude Bellingham at, at Dortmund, I could see that working really well. The wise but old without, goat of the Catalonia, yeah? Well, you know, he, he's he got... I think the thing that when, when you look at his career, what you see is a player who is able to adjust to a wide array of tactical instructions. And and that, to me, suggests a player who's smart and who's disciplined and who figures out what, what is being asked of them and then is able to do that. And that's exactly the sort of presence that you want alongside, you know, your, your kind of bright, shining midfield star of the future. You want somebody who can shepherd them through difficult patches. Um, and so, you know, clubs that need that, that, that to me would seem to make sense. Thank you, Alex. Thank you specifically, Alex, for that answer. I feel Alex understands that <laughs> you feel uh, people listening to this, they want to uh, be excited. They want to imagine players at other clubs. They don't want the old Pepe Reina to come here and say, <laughs> oh, it can't happen because of the real world. This isn't the real world, Seb. This is a podcast, yeah? Get it together, prick. Anyway, sorry I called you a prick. I didn't mean that. Uh, we've got uh, you've got four minutes to talk about uh, Lionel Messi, um, which doesn't feel like long enough. But you know, pff, fuck him. Loads of people talk about him all the time. He could stay after the upcoming election. Uh, I mean, if Javi returns, also yeah, interesting. Uh, Manchester City apparently believe themselves to be first in line, right? If uh, if if not. Um, but uh, I don't know, uh, Seb. Let's 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 begin with you. What do you make of the situation? And uh, p- personally, I will say I would love to see him play at another club just for the just for the um, just ha- for having seen it. Oh, me too, me too. But I, I can't see it happening. I think um, I think Xavi becomes Barcelona manager at some point this year, probably in the middle of it, maybe after the Euros, and then uh, Messi signs some kind of extension. It's very difficult because again, financially, but. Um, if the, the kind of political succession, um, political succession in a club like that is always going to depend on a certain degree of popularity. Um, and could there be anything less popular than allowing Leo Messi to leave, even at this stage of his career, even, you know, because of, um, you know, what is becoming emblematic value? I mean, it's just, you can't do it. So I, I think he has to stay. And I think because of the relationship with Xavi, he stays. Particularly on the free transfer, right? Yeah, I think so. And also, I mean, I, I just... 
I don't want to see him play for Manchester City. I don't. I don't find that very interesting. I, I agree with you in the sense that I, I find it interesting to see him play for another club, but I would like to see him play for another club in a different type of situation, not in another possession-heavy system, uh, not in a um, not in a familiar environment with a coach that he knows quite well or very well. Sorry, um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't grip me. Yeah, you want to see him thrust into new waters to to, to watch his ability to adapt and to see something different. That, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? We, we've all watched Messi for you know over a decade now. What we really want is less about seeing him at another team and more about seeing seeing him in a totally different environment, like seeing something new that we haven't seen before. Exactly that. Yeah. Well, Alex, where could you find that? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm Fair gonna enough. be the Seb here. I've, no, well, yeah, please do. No, that's not that's not gonna become a thing. That's oh, not I think gonna it's the Seb, become yeah. the, the Seb just the by Pepe, being the Pepe, Pepe, Pepe Stafford Bloor. I think we'll call it or Seb Rayner. <laughs> Seb Rayner, I like that. Oh, Seb Rayner, yeah. reigning the conversation in. Thanks, Seb. That's very nice. That's very clever. That, 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 that um, clever web of clever. words that you've spun. Yeah. I mean, you know, Messi. Messi's the sort of player who could who could probably go to almost anywhere and for at least a season or two still be the best player in that league. Um and and it that's, you know, I know that's a very lazy thing to say, but it's it's probably still not an exaggeration. Um for all of the political reasons that Seb suggested, I, I just can't see I mean, whoever the next president of Barcelona is, they would like mortgage their entire family to secure enough money for for Messi's <laughs> continued presence there, um, yeah. but I suppose if you want something that's really random, you could see him maybe after a year or two going to somewhere like uh, Atlanta United in in MLS. Um, yeah, he and, has said he wants to finish his career in America, right? Yeah, well, uh, Atlanta has, has got in the past. Yes. quite a strong, or a particularly strong South American connection, and has had Tata Martino as as coach, not there anymore at the moment, obviously. But um, and they're a very aspirational club. I think they've replaced um, LA Galaxy as kind of the, the the sexy club for those big players to go to. If he does go to Man City, obviously, then finally there would be a route to somewhere like New York City FC where there's that connection. So you can see various little permutations, but I I don't think they're going to happen for a year or two. Well, yeah, and also thinking about the, what what a player might want by moving to America. Do you want to move to New York City or do you want to move to Georgia? Yeah, personally, I'd you know, move to Georgia. I think it'd be more interesting to, to It'd be, be more the, fun, yeah. You'd get to grips I, I think, with the culture more, you know, I think and you'd vote a, in a Democrat. But other than that... Sure, I think there's there's a, another quick point to make about Messi, which um, which I picked up from some of Dermot Corrigan's really good reporting on this for the Athletic is that during the pandemic, Messi was personally paying for the wages of quite a lot of of Barcelona's non-playing staff and so on. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of real sense that he has not in a necessarily a wholly nice way, but he feels. Like he's that important to the club that he's actually doling out his money to pay people's wages and so on. Like he's there's there's such a an attachment between those two entities that it feels like it would be genuinely seismic for it to to break up, particularly with these looming presidential elections and so on. Um, so I I just can't see it happening. Volcano. No, you know? seismic is earthquakes. 
earthquakes. I think they're the same thing, aren't they? You have an earthquake near a volcano, I, 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 I think stuff doesn't, starts happening. I, I, I paid attention to, um, to this during school, and I'm sure there's some kind of seismic activity which begins whatever happens. There is, um, Seb. There to is. Cause a volcano Alex has eruption. himself as a geography fool. He doesn't understand. As a payer of attention. Right, yeah. but one's but a mountain, no. one's an Earth's crust. Anyway, earthquakes, that's the earthquakes end of the don't shush have up. to have shush a volcano. Up. Shush up now. Shush up. There we go. Uh... <laughs> You're just so giving a specific that. example of geological activity with that. That's all I was doing. That's all I was doing. Uh, happy to. Happy to agree to that. Listen, it's the end of the. Oh, it's not the end. Christ, we've been talking for ages, and we've, we're now going to go and talk to Greg. This is exciting, isn't it? Hey, people, Aston Villa supporters, people who are interested in Aston Villa, hey, generalists, everyone, stick around. Greg's a great guy. Seb, you spoke to Greg, uh, and we're going we're gonna to run that now. Uh, and then we'll be back at the end to say goodbye. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back, Greg. And actually, you know what? It's a real pleasure to to be tackling a novel subject because Villa are good. And it seems like a really, 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 really long time since I was able to say that. Um, I suppose the point of having you on, I think we last had you on in around August, just after that they avoided relegation. And it was kind of, I got the impression that you just relieved the season was over by that point. Yeah, hi Seb, Not nice to do that, thank you. Um, I feel like every time I've, I've spoken to you, actually, it's been quite a negative topic, really. There hasn't been, <laughs> there hasn't been much, uh, much positivity around our previous conversations. So uh, it's nice to be back with, armed with some material to, 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 to give you <laughs> that's, that's full of a bit of positivity. But yeah, last time we spoke, I mean, it was more of a relief. Last year was just a... Um, a crazy year really and, and the back end of last season was was crazy as well in terms of you know Villa had so much going on every single game that I was attending um, it, it felt like it was like a make or break game and and obviously with, with the level of detail that, w- that we go into our reports um, at The Athletic it, it was it was really quite time consuming and, and taxing for me as well so it was nice when Villa survived um, and even better now that I've got positive stuff to write about <laughs> Well, let's also make your pod appearance more gratifying this time. And tell me, I think beyond them just being good, I've enjoyed watching Villa this season. I've enjoyed their performances. Most recently, like I, I, I know they ended up losing the game contentiously, but uh, I thought they were excellent at Old Trafford against Man United before um, Paul Pogba did what he did. Um, but what what's actually improved? What is the what are the mechanics behind this the evolution of this side? 
Yeah, there's a lot to it, to be honest. Um, I mean, very basically, Villa are, Villa have actually gone back to basics in, in some of their defending. The, the issues that they had was that they just couldn't defend. They were facing too many shots you know, every single game, conceding too many goals. Um, they, I think they had more individual errors leading to goals and, and shots as well. So, I mean, when you're a newly promoted side and, and, and those figures are stacking against you, it's inevitable you're going to... A can see goals and, and B probably lose games as well. So they've gone back to basics a little bit. I think what I noticed during the project restart, where uh, performances and results improved at the back end of last season, was just very you know minor changes. Things like instead of trying to play out from the back and, and pass it between themselves, it was just sometimes as simple to touch it out of play or hoof it upfield. And you know what I noticed with a lot of Villa's kicks were they were longing towards the channels and asking asking the uh, forward players to run into them. And that was just simply relieving pressure and, and taking the ball out of their own half into the opposition half. It was it was simple things like that. And then this season, um, I feel like they've. They've got probably one of the best defensive midfielders in the division now in, in Douglas Louise acting as a as a shield in front of that back four as well. So that's tightened up the um you know, the defence even further. The fact that Villa have kept eight clean sheets out of fifteen games more than any um club in the division uh, speaks volumes of the changes. And they've you know, also up front and, and, and in attack they've got Jack Grealish who's probably one of the um most informed attackers you know, in the world right now almost you know it's not it's not outlandish to to describe him as that no Grealish is really interesting it feels like we've we've reached a tipping point with him where last season irritatingly there were still people that sort of contested his effect and you know kind of treated him like he was sort of football league snake oil essentially and I don't think I'm wrong in saying that you know over the last kind of four or five months that that argument's kind of been won like both internationally and at club level because there have been times this season when honestly I think with maybe the exception of the usual characters, Grilish has been at least among the very best players in the country. Has there been, um, is this is this about his individual evolution or has there been a greater attempt at basing the side around his abilities? Because it feels like he's more prominent now than he was 12 months ago. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, you know, you make an interesting point there, Seb, about the fact that uh, there aren't many other players that are performing better than him. And one of the, you know, the real standout moments I thought in the season was when, when England played Belgium in the, uh, uh, in, you know, in the, in the recent international fixtures. And, and after the game, it, it was actually Kevin De Bruyne, who we probably all agree is, you know, the best midfielder or attacking midfielder in, in, in the division. Um he made a beeline for Grealish just to to praise him for his performance and ask him to swap shirts. And you know, if you, if you get into that level, then you know you're doing something right. And um, you know, I think he's doing it for club and country now. I think he needed to be to get that international call up for the rest of the you know the country, the nation, the world almost to to um, appreciate how good he he was. Everybody who watches him, like myself, week in, week out, knows how good he is and knows how he can make a real big impact in games. But I think he needed that wider reach um, just to just to bring himself further. And yeah, what, what Villa have done specifically is they've tried to um, keep him in a, in a dangerous attacking position. The, 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 probably, the two criticisms really of him was that he used to drop a little bit too deep and try to get on the ball in, in areas that weren't really... Um, you know, get, getting the best for Villa, and 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 the other criticism was that he didn't release the ball quick enough. You know, it, it was Graham Souness who who said on one of the uh, one of his Sky Sports uh, appearances that 
you know, he he highlighted that, and Jack Grealish was quick to shoot him down on Twitter with a well, with, you, with a graph with a graphic. Saying, you, know, you know, it's interesting, you know, Greg. Like, this is how many chances I've created. <laughs> but I, I, the thing about him releasing the ball is because I feel like this is one of those misconceptions about Grealish, and it has been for years, is that like he's selfish, doesn't release the ball too much, and I would say that the, the problem for him at some time, at different points has been the opposite. Like he passes too much. Like I I, I want to see. There have been instances where, for instance, um, particularly in in the last championship season, where you, you looked at him, and you thought you can't quite make up your mind whether you want to be a dynamic player that you know a Gascoigne type or someone that's just a pure playmaker. And you think sometimes just trust your ability a bit more, which is a really weird thing to say about Grealish, and it feels like this is this is something that he might have been battling against for quite a long time. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's what makes the the criticism from Sunes even more confusing and baffling, really, because in the years previously, the criticism of Grealish from from other outside um, uh, sections was that he didn't score enough goals or he didn't get enough assists. So he's always been battling something. He's always been fighting something, whether it's um, his party boy image, which I think was you know wrongly given to him, even though he was on the the head you know, the back pages and the headlines for the wrong reasons on a number of occasions. He's always been battling that. He's always been battling the fact that he hasn't scored enough goals or made enough assists. He's certainly done that in in twenty twenty. Um, and then yeah, you know the fact that he doesn't release the ball quick enough. Look, you know he's created so many opportunities for his teammates. I think I'm pretty sure, I'm safe in saying he's created the most in Europe um, out of all out of all the top leagues. So. Um, and what Villa have done is, you know, as I was trying to say earlier, is that they've kept him in attacking areas. He's 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 got more touches in the box than he's ever had this season. Um, you know, this season compared to previous seasons. So Dean Smith has clearly identified the area where Jack Grealish can hurt opponents, and and he seems to be doing that now. Let's talk about some of the pieces that have been installed around him, because obviously one of the big differences between this season and last is. The standard of the recruitment. Um, there are good reasons for that. Um, obviously, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Jesus Patak left over the summer. He was dismissed by Christian Perzai and replaced by Johan Lang. Uh, Johan Lang? Johan Langer? How am I pronouncing Langer, that? I think. Yeah, Langer. but you know, we'll, we'll go with either. Okay, you learn something every day. Um, talk to me about the standard of that recruitment. Has anything, has anything changed behind closed doors in terms of the operating procedure, the way they do things? Uh, yeah, it's a difficult one, really. You know, I'm, I'm always um, wary of slating Jesus Patash too much because, I, you know, it was a really tough job for him. You know, he was the sporting director at the time where Villa needed to completely rebuild their squad. You know, they, they got promoted into the Premier League, um, had only a small section of players to turn to. And, they, you know, they had to go and recruit 11 or 12 players. So that was always going to be difficult when you have to work within the financial uh, parameters as well that you know that, that, that the owners and that the uh, league set in as well you, know, you can't go spending ridiculous amount of money because of FFP so so Villa had to buy play you know 10 or 11 players within a budget of about 120 130 million so you know you, you can do the maths there so, so you're looking at players every individual player at an average of what 10 11 12 million pounds so you're not going to get a an incredibly talented Premier League team. And this time, what Villa have been able to do, having survived by just a single point, um, you know, in, in, in the previous season, is 
they've been able to look at the players that have performed well in that first season back in the Premier League. Look at the ones that okay, and say maybe weren't quite up to scratch. You know, we can we can move you on now or or, or put you into um, you know the fringe player player category, um, and they've been able to recruit quite quite aggressively in in three or four positions. The goalkeeper, Emi Martinez, absolutely brilliant. Uh, Good acquisition. player, the goalkeeper. Brilliant. Really, I'm, I mean, I'm actually surprised that Arsenal let him go. I, I think he's, um, it's interesting because he, he's, he's quite a stable goalkeeper, isn't he? He's not sort of, I don't think he's necessarily going to make the kind of the, um, he's not going to be uh, on the highlight reels for the for his saves. He's not as watchable as some others, but he does everything really well, which is a really, yeah. it's a, a really nice quality in a goalkeeper. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant, you know, and, and, and the fact that he'd been at Arsenal for 10 years and let's be honest, none of us really knew how good he was. And, and you know, he's come to Villa um, the last six or seven months for him. He played at the back end of, of last season for Arsenal, obviously, and helped them towards a couple of trophies, um, which is quite rare at Arsenal, isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest. Um, and, you know, and, and, and he's now at a Villa team who who can probably say that, that they're ahead of Arsenal at the moment. And again, that wouldn't be an outlandish comment either so it's a good move for him a good move for Villa they, they felt like they were able to get a 28 year old in the peak of his career for that money 20 million pound it was a it was an opportunity they couldn't um let go I think also I mean Matty Cash has been really impressive it felt like there are a lot of clubs that probably could have taken that gamble on him um, and brought him in from Forest but you know it's kind of um credit to, to Villa's judgment the one that interests me, I think, is Ross Barkley. Um, I don't know what his long-term future is like at Villa, but it seems like Barkley's always seemed to me like, firstly, someone that needed to play at a specific level. He needed to be at a side where he was going to be, not a focal point, but um, pivotal to what a side was doing in the attacking sense. Um, first question, how is how has he changed the way that Villa go forward? Because we, we talked right at the beginning about how much how much I enjoyed watching them. And that's partly because they are just a watchable side. And it feels like Barkley at different times, he hasn't, you know, he hasn't been consistently excellent or anything, but at different times, he's been very important to that. Yeah, certainly. The, the, the last couple of weeks, you know, last month or so has been frustrating for him because he's been been out with a hamstring injury. And um, what, what initially we thought was a short-term injury is turning now into a medium-term injury. You know, he's been out for a while now. So, the, the key for him is, is to get back playing again. But those early games, you know, he, he came in, I think I think his debut was the 7-2 win over I think over it was, Liverpool. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was, yeah, third game of the season. Yeah, so that, that was the, you know, that was his debut. What a brilliant way to, to, to mark his debut. A couple of goals, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and a real leading force in that team. What he's brought different to that team is... One, he can take the pressure off Jack Grealish because um, you know he, he he becomes another player that defenders have to focus on because of his qualities. Um, he can actually get the ball from midfield in central areas where previously Villa couldn't and drive forward. And 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 previously it was only Grealish who who was able to do that. Um, and he's also got this uh, you know this ability to score goals from from outside the box. You know he's like he likes to get his shots off. Um, very accurate with his shooting as well. And and as he, and as you've seen, already got three or four goals this season. So he will be a big player for Villa in the second half of the season. But they've just got to get him back fit. Yeah, I suppose it's funny. It, when he went down with a hamstring injury, you worry because obviously. When he joined Chelsea, he had that very serious hamstring injury, which I think had kept him out for something like four or five months before the move. 
Um, and so you always have that. I don't know if it's the same the same hamstring, but you always have that kind of. It's like the it's like his version of Harry Kane and his ankles. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. just the ones yeah. you worry about. Um, just to, just to finish off, obviously last season, given the um, you know the amount of flux in the squad and the number of players that had to be replaced and brought in, anything anything more than seventeenth place was going to be a huge success and you know survival. What's the what's the long term plan at Villa now? Like what beyond just this season, when presumably you know top half finish would be brilliant. What's the what's the strategy behind the club? Yeah, so I think I I think I touched on this in in, in, a, in an in depth article I wrote in the Athletic, probably about the midpoint of last season. It was it was survival last season. You know, it was finishing finishing seventeenth by a point was it was an absolutely brilliant achievement. You know, it was survival, and then it was all about surviving last season and then moving on from there. The next season will be a little bit more progression. You know, increasing the revenue streams somewhat by 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 putting um, better sponsorship deals in place and attracting bigger partners. Okay, the whole COVID situation has. Um, um, you know, impacted on that, but it was things like that slightly moving up their positions um, in the table. Let, let, let's move from a relegation threatened club to a club that are, um, you know, somewhere in the middle of the pack and, and um, you know, being able to be a bit more comfortable in the season. And then, you know, it's it's trying to push for a for a, for a, for a cup run further. Villa got to the FA, uh, the League Cup final last season and and unfortunately lost to Man City. But you know, it's now. It's now a long, long time since they've won a trophy. Nineteen ninety six was was the last time, so that's in the back of their minds. They want to start to become this team that are not only established in the Premier League, but are then challenging for European positions, challenging in in the latter rounds of of competitions, and just slowly building that squad together. You know, as I mentioned, just last did this summer just gone. It was about fine tuning, bringing three or four players into various positions. Next summer, it might only be maybe two or three or, or one or two even. Um, and then it's becoming self-sustainable as well. There's a big push in the academy to bring players through, um, to develop their own. And, and, and if Villa can do that, you know, and, and actually be bringing players of their own through into the first team and then it maybe even selling a couple on um, at a much bigger profit, they'll become self-sustainable. And the owners are very, very enthused um, and ambitious. And I think we've spoke about that on the pods before. It's that 96 League Cup final when Andre Kanchelskis got sent off a deliberate handball on the line. Is that uh, the one? Yes. And then Dean Saunders scored. Yeah, God, that's... I, I'm old, Greg. I'm old. No, sorry. Is that 90... That's 90... Yeah, no, it is, isn't it? Yeah, 94 was Leeds. Yeah, 96 was... Um, 96 was Man United uh, and... 96 Man United. Yeah, of course, yeah. I, re- I just remember Andre Kanchelskis getting sent off. Yeah, you're right. And everyone loving it because <laughs> obviously bad things are happening to Man United, which is, you know, no, no one hates that. <laughs> but I just remember him... Um, do you remember in old Wembley how you used to have that huge distance between um, the, the, the sort of the north and south end of the ground <laughs> yes. and, and, the, and the pitch? And he just stood there looking sad. For a while, it was just really weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dean Saunders scored the penalty. Greg, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we will catch up with you towards the end of the season. You're welcome. Thanks, Seb. Take care. Okay, well, that was Greg and Seb, and wasn't that lovely? Uh, and now we're going to say goodbye. Alex, say goodbye. Goodbye. Seb, say goodbye. Goodbye. And I will say goodbye. Goodbye.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.